It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. I'm one of your regular hosts, Greg Bosco, and it's good to be back for big episode 68. I had to take a few week hiatus as I was uh, just transitioning into a a new assignment for work. But with me, as always, is the very steady Captain Derek. Say hello. Hey, welcome back. It's good to see you, Greg. I hope, hope all is well. All is well. It's uh, it is definitely good to be back. I have to admit, it was uh, it's been a long couple weeks, but unfortunately, that just that just kind of happens sometimes. So, yeah, you know. you know, look, podcasting. We do a lot of this for fun. It's supposed to be a good time. Other things do take priority. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I do have to, you know, pay a mortgage now and then. I mean, I pay my mortgage every month on time. In case my company's listening. So, uh, but no, it's good to be back. We got a couple, we got some news clips to talk about really quickly. And of course, we're going to cover the most recent two Discovery episodes, uh, Such Sweet Sorrow Parts 1 and 2. It was a pretty decent two-parter. It was, uh, and we'll probably talk about our thoughts on Discovery Season 2 a little bit more next week so we can dedicate more of our time to it. Uh, But really quick, Derek, was there any news that you wanted to cover before we dive right into the episode? Yeah, um, so we do have a few things, so we'll, we'll kind of move through them. Uh, first, for those who are not aware, the Untitled Picard series has officially started production. That happened uh, this week, and so that is officially a thing. We got some new casting information. Um, three new cast members were announced, um, and... You know, it's really nobody that I'm I'm super aware of. Uh, there's Allison Pill, who I know from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Um, Harry Treadaway, who is from The Crown, um, as as well as some other things. And and I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing this, but I think it's Isa 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 Briones uh, from Hamilton. Um, there. Recently, uh, the youngest member of the Hamilton National Tour and has been on American Crime Story. Uh, so, you know, obviously actors with some experience. Um, but uh, yeah, so that is happening. I assume they're keeping any actors we we know in Trek a secret if there are any. Um, to go into production stuff, the Section 31 show is in the works. 
Um, it's confirmed that production for that would not happen until after season three of Disco. So we've got some time for that. The Picard show should be next season one of whatever that will be called. And then we'll get Disco season three. And then um, then uh, the Section 31 show will get started. Um Lots of little pieces of information about the Section 31 show, just basically saying that we're going to see a very different Section 31. It'll We'll start to see it evolve towards what we see in Deep Space Nine um, and later, you know, um, so we'll hopefully get some explanations to why they kind of went underground, so to speak. So that is happening. Um, other than that, just a few confirmations about where disco is headed. So spoiler warning, if you have not watched the finales of star Trek discovery season two, uh, I would pause this and go watch those before you come back. But Alex Kurtzman, who is one of the creators and was the showrunner uh, this season, and will be a co-showrunner next season um, confirmed that we'll begin season three, 950 years into the future. And uh, Greg and I will talk about this in more detail, of course. Um, and so that's where that will be for the time being. Um, and I have some opinions about that. So, um, but it is confirmed that that's, that's what that will be. Uh, the, any possible Pike or number one series is, uh, certainly something that they would be open to, but they're claiming nothing is in the works at this time. Um, of course, if there was something in the works, they might not want to tell us, uh, cause they might want it to be a surprise. So who knows? Um, other than that, you know, I don't, I don't think I have any other news related items. Um, Greg, I know you've got, you kind of had a, a, a blog post that you found interesting kind of talking about the characters of discovery. I didn't know if you wanted to cover that now or later. Well, I mean, I'll touch on it now and I'll make sure that I link it on Twitter so that people who are interested can, uh, can take a look at it. It's a really good blog post, uh, from actually from Reddit. And I know people have mixed opinions on Reddit, but Occasionally, for a lot of the sci-fi story-going people, it could be a good resource. Uh, there's a lot of talented people out there, and it's kind of um, it's it's a focus on the post of you know the eight deadly words, which is when an audience kind of starts stopping to care about a character, like they stop caring about a certain character for whatever the reason is. And most of the time, it's when a character gets shoehorned into a certain role. And a couple weeks ago, Derek and I were talking about. How occasionally Discovery Season 2 was breaking that cardinal rule of they were telling us something that they should have shown us. And this was a good season where they could have done the, the they could have reversed it and done the show, Don't Tell. And a lot of that has to do with whether it's Michael Burnham, you know, they're talking about, like, even with the whole, you know, we're going to get to the whole plot stuff, but everybody knows the whole mother. If you're listening to our podcast, you know about the whole mother engagement with the Red Angel and such. If not, I'm surprised you made it to episode 68 of Red Shirts and Runabouts, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> welcome. But it, yeah, welcome. If you're just starting now, uh, spoiler alert. But it kind of talks about how some of the stories set up certain characters to fill those roles, and those, only those characters can ever fill those roles. Whereas on Next Generation, or I think now that I'm rewatching Voyager, Voyager's a great example where on almost any random episode, any person on that cast and crew could be the hero. I mean, Neelix was the hero a couple times. Kess was the hero a couple times. Uh, you know, on DS9, or excuse me, on Next Generation, Picard may have been the captain, but there were several episodes where Crusher was the hero, or Troy was the hero, or, you know, they, they their roles were so diverse and well-written 
And Discovery Season 2 kind of just started pigeonholing people into very certain roles. Like, you already know some episodes in that Burnham has to be the hero. And I get it because she's the main character. But it's a really interesting blog post about how sometimes that limits an actor or actress's ability to really branch out. And I think that's, you know, Quark is a perfect example. Remember how early on in DS9, Quark was just kind of like another Ferengi? Pretty entertaining, but pretty, he was a Ferengi. Mm -hmm. And then every so often he gives a quip about humans or, you know, the Federation is the only people that can save us and all this stuff. And his character continues to grow and grow and grow. And it, it's an interesting blog post. So I'll, I'll share it on Twitter. People can discuss it. They, the person goes through basically all the characters. Um, you know, it emphasizes a lot about Saru, about how we've brought up Saru plenty of times on this podcast, about despite how the fact that Saru is arguably one of the most heroic characters, he's one of the characters on the show that gets the least recognition from Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And you could argue he saved the ship plenty of times with his decision making. So again, it's it's interesting, but I don't want to spoil it too much because we could spend hours talking about the characters. Um, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, but that's that's you know, and again, I go back to saying what I've been saying for years is you can love something and still criticize it. It doesn't mean that this author is any less of a Star Trek fan. They went on a twelve-page post about the characters. They obviously like Star Trek. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if you don't if you don't care about Star Trek, you're going to do an LOL lol meme. And just make fun of how they look. This person cares enough about Star Trek to talk about their favorite characters and why they love, you know, Saru and Culber. And, you know, they go on to talk about how Culber probably had one of the most realistic arcs on the entire show, you know, with what he went through. Mm -hmm. And that's a good point. He adjusted, he adapted, he overcame. And, you know, but we'll talk about that more. But we got we got two episodes to talk about, even though it's a it's a two parter. But before we dive into the in-depth, spoilery nature that is Red Shirts and Runabouts. What were your overall thoughts on the episodes? Well, um, you know, I th- there's a couple you know minor things I can I can get a little real-world nitpicky about. Uh, having a two-part finale in a completely serialized show seems a little semantic, I guess. Um, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1 is as much an extension uh, through, of Through the Valley of Shadows as part two is to part one. So the distinction seemed a little funny to me, but um, there are things I really loved about this season. These last two episodes, there's some things I really loved about it. There are some things that really drove me nuts uh, that I'm still trying to figure out how to set aside to enjoy it. Um, so you know, I want to try and balance my thoughts as we talk tonight. Cause I don't want to, to ignore the faults or harp on them at the same time. But uh, overall, I, I guess the best way to explain it is I left season one, like desperately wanting to see what happens next. Whereas I've left season two kind of annoyed. (laughs) If that makes sense. No, it it makes complete sense. And yeah, we won't jump into the ending, but the way they ended it, I actually did not agree with at all. I thought it was the way it felt kind of like an ending of convenience versus an ending of quality story. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I'm not, the way they ended it, I'm not as interested in season three as, like you said, as I was in season two. I enjoyed the season one ending. I was like, oh, it's a pretty cool way to end the Klingon War and get us into an, a new age of exploration. We kind of got exploration in season two. Um, but like you mentioned, it's very serialized. 
Right. It, it felt a little bit more X-Files-ish serialized with, let's track the Red Angel and let's track this Red and Energy stuff and blah, blah, blah. And let's deal with control versus, you know, I have a really good dear friend of mine that's brought up that for, you know, 50 years, Star Trek has always been about exploring and expanding the human spirit. And you, you, I didn't really get that in season two, and I definitely didn't get it in these two episodes. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you look at these two episodes, the first one is mostly just characters saying goodbye to each other, and we're reintroduced to characters, we're given everybody's names, uh, which I'm not really complaining about that, because there are a lot of characters we don't get a lot from, so it's nice to have that reminder for some of them. Um, like Bryce, for example, our comms officer, you know, a lot of people didn't know his name, um, when we talked about him at our convention a few weeks ago. Um, you know, so that's, that's nice. I'm okay with that. But when you have a two-parter like this and they, they did get an one episode, uh, extension to the season. It was originally supposed to be 13. They got 14. So it felt like they used that extra time to just kind of have everybody say goodbye to each other. And then most of that's undone when, basically the entire main cast stays on board right with the exception of um pike and number one who have to be on enterprise and admiral cornwell who doesn't really have a reason to be on discovery with the exception being spock and Giorgio, who we'll talk about um so they have all these long goodbyes and everybody's really you know sad and they're they're writing their letters and all these other things um and you know, then it's that stops and we go into our battle and I think the battle probably bothers me more than anything in these two uh, episodes. I would agree with you. Um, and no, I'm not one of those people who looked at the graphic and saw our two ships surrounded neatly by the section 31 ships. Like, yes, I know there's a Z axis and, you know, um, ships can come from every angle, but it's still a TV show. And you've seen those memes out there. It looks silly when the ships are at weird angles. It just does. So that's not my complaint, but, um, let, let, like, let's pretend for a minute that both of these ships had fighters, which is something we don't really ever see. In either of these ships other times but let's you pretend they star do wars discovery like i mean i know that like there's a star trek game called invasion it's a mirror universe game uh where uh there are fighters that you fly it's not a great game but there's fighters in that and i know deep space nine had some of those types of things uh but let's pretend there's fighters and okay so the maybe the enterprise can hold 20 of them maybe 30 of them 50 of them but between both ships, you have 200 shuttles and fighters. Like, pardon my language, but where the fuck were they keeping them? <laughs> well, and especially when we've never seen them, like, ever. And even on the Deep Space Nine reference, I'm not, I'm, and I know there's going to be someone out there way smarter than me, but I swear that there was a reference in DS9 that, man, the Federation started using fighters because the smaller Dominion ships, mm-hmm. they needed smaller interceptor craft to help deal with them because Starfleet... Was not and there was that line in Star Trek Beyond when they're dealing with the swarm, right? And even Spock's like, "Our ship is not designed for combat like this," mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's you know the Odyssey got wrecked by three Dominion fighters and the runabouts got wrecked, and then Starfleet and DS Nine starts using little fighter craft to intercept the Dominion ships and keep them the hell away from the big ships, which is that's real life. I mean, I hate to say that's based on real history, but that's based on real history. With World War II carriers, I mean, they used their planes to keep enemy planes away from the other ships. 
Absolutely. And I definitely don't want anyone to think I, I found a problem with the fact that there are fighters because I think that that's fine. I, I just – it became a cloud. It became its own swarm of fighters. I mean I just – it didn't seem realistic to me that either ship was housing a hundred of these fighters. And with Discovery, there's been zero sign that any of these exist anyway. So most of those had to be on Enterprise. So Enterprise had 150 fighters on board. Well, and the other thing the, I agree with the you The crew about isn't is, much more than that. Yeah, then that's the thing I was just about to mention. <laughs> okay, and I, we're getting a little spoilery, but Control is using drones, which is fine. Modern day militaries have drones. But where the hell are they getting the crew to fly these things? They're cannibalizing crew from the rest of the critical systems of the ships. And like you said, Discovery wasn't loaded with crew to begin with. And the Enterprise just came from space docks. So even if they have a full complement of crew, which was... I don't know if they've ever said what the complement of the Discovery Enterprise crew was. Was it, I mean, 600? Well, no, no, they're, they're both much, much lower than that. And we did discuss them. It's been a little while. So I'm going to pull it up here on Memory Alpha. Um, and we'll take just a quick look at the crew complement. Because I know that we do talk about it. Um but it's low. It's it's not a lot of people. Uh, approximately. So here we go. Um, in 2256, um, it looks like it had somewhere between 136 and 200 people. Um, in the Red Angel episode, it's referenced that there's 200 people on board. Okay. Uh, the Enterprise, of course, is a larger ship. Um, but even in the original series, the Enterprise only had, I believe it was 206 members on the crew um, i'm gonna pull that up real quick as well here for people but i'm pretty sure its crew was between two and four hundred um let's see if i can find a good a good reference point here but either way even if we go with the high side you're talking about you know talking about between four and six hundred people and a third of them are going to be in fighters that somehow fit on these ships and I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because these fighters take up space. Okay. Maybe they're only piloted by one or two people and that's fine. But where, where are they? Where are they being stored? The shuttle bay can't hold a hundred fighters, right? It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when they're swarming out and these are models and you're watching these CGI models and they just keep coming. It was like a clown car. And I actually, no, it was definitely a clown car. Like I giggled at that. And then you start seeing it like a cloud, you know? And then of course the battle starts and control. Of course, all of section 31 ships have a thousand drones on theirs too. And okay. So let's put that all aside for a minute. So control has as many drones as we do. Theirs are harder to kill because you have to have two attacking points 
at the same time. Weird, but Trekno Babble, fine. I still don't understand how thirty-one section control section thirty uh, how thirty section thirty-one ships could not take down the Enterprise. Well, and it references something that you and I discussed another a few episodes ago. Where in the where in the hell were these ships during the Klingon War? Because there's nothing that the Klingons had that could have stood up to this armada, unless, like you said, unless we're absolutely missing something, and their weapons are basically lasers and not phasers, and they just don't say it. But do you know? Did you? Okay, I'm going to make a reference that like three like three of our listeners are going to understand. In the 90s, did you ever see the movie Wing Commander? It was really terrible. It was based off the video game. <laughs> yeah, I like the so, video games. <laughs> uh, the video games were better movies than the goddamn movie was. But there's a scene in the movie where the where the Kilrathi fighters are diving on a Terran starbase and bombing it. And they're making buzzing noises like German Stukas from World War II. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how are they making noises when sound doesn't travel in space? And it's like... There's suspension of disbelief, and then there's somewhat insulting our intelligence. It would have essentially would have been, you know, like you said, they had they they specifically said two hundred some fighter craft to defend the two ships, and Section Thirty One melted into like thousands of these little drone things, and I, that's what I mean about the about the insulting of some people's intelligence is I think they could have been more clever about it. I almost would have preferred. Like the Section 31 ships just engaging with normal broadsides like we typically see in Star Trek versus swarm on swarm. And again, everybody, the people out there listening are like, well, you're only talking about part two. Why aren't you talking about part one? And, you know, I hate to say it, like part one, not much happens. Most of it is what Derek said is people saying goodbye to their emotional connections. I mean, there was a really sad goodbye between Culver and Stamets. And yes. There was a sad goodbye amongst all the cast and crew, and there was a very touching moment where Burnham thinks she's going on a suicide mission, and like fifteen people are like, "Well, we're going to go with you to make sure that you get there safely." And it's a, it's pretty emotional, mm-hmm. and it that's all immediately like forgotten. Like the moment part two happens, it's all the Discovery has a full cast and crew. They have a full complement of people, minus fifty or sixty that are flying shuttles and fighter craft. <laughs> so it's like that emotional connection from episode one's already gone. Because the, the, the crew is all there. Now, I don't want to minimize the Culver Stamets story because that's probably my favorite part of the two-part finale is the two of them. Because first off, like they're great actors. Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz just nail these two roles and their chemistry is wonderful. And seeing them interact with each other is great because their story kept getting pushed to the bottom of the barrel all season because there was these bigger stories to tell and the universe is constantly on the brink of destruction. So how can we care about this one couple? But that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see what Colbert was going through. How, how has he changed? How is he dealing with it? You know, how is Stamets handling it? I mean, yeah, Culber's been through a lot, but Stamets has too. And we finally get to see the two of them talk like real people. You know, uh, Stamets isn't trying to pretend everything's fine and Culber's not just angry. They're actually talking to each other like they care about each other. And it's a great conversation both times when they're saying their goodbyes and in the, in, uh, later in the sickbay. Um, I, I think that that's wonderful. Um, it makes me happy that Colbert is on the ship, so we do get him next season. I would have been pretty bummed if we brought him back to life just to take him off the ship. <laughs> um, but 
the rest of that, you're right, it kind of seemed dropped. Every single character that we have been introduced to on Discovery that is a Discovery crew member stayed on the ship. Every single one of them. You know, you, you didn't even have a token, I'm not going to die for this character. Nobody. Everybody stayed on board. And and, they, and I get know. that they're, they're staying on board to help what they're going to, what they're saying is to protect Michael, but even, even the situation that puts Michael in the red angel. And I, I remember, and I, all of our brains realized it when, you know, there's the comment like, Oh, near a 100% match or whatever, or you have the closest mitochondrial DNA. And obviously I am not a genetic biologist of any kind, <laughs> but I remember basic biology from class where if you have two parents that are your biological parents, and everything goes according to plan, you basically inherit 50% of your DNA from one parent and 50% from the other. And again, I know there's going to be somebody much smarter than me out there that's going to be like, wow, Greg, in one circumstance. Like, well, st- typically that's what happens is you inherit DNA from both parents. So it's like, I'm not a 100% match of my father, and I'm not a 100% match of my mother. And when they're like, oh, she's a 100% match, everybody's brain is probably like, well, wait a second. It's like genetic twins. I don't even know if they're considered a 100% match. And so it, it kind of shoehorned it. And uh, you know what would have been better to make it more risky is if they're like, well, yeah, this was tailored to your mom, Michael. And yeah, you can use it because you share some of her DNA, but it's going to be painful and it might kill you. And have her volunteer to do it anyways. Have her literally say... I understand the risk. I understand the threat to my life. But in order to save the ship and crew and maybe the galaxy, I'm going to do this. It's like, boom, there's more tension right there already. And then it makes everybody's kind of like offering to stay and help her even more dramatic because now she has a risk from the suit and there's an ongoing space battle they're going to help protect her from. I think, you know, again, that's just a very minor change. That's not a huge change. And you think there would have been somebody in the writer's room that said that, but it just... You know what you heard me. Everybody heard me complaining earlier in the season that like death matters in television and in stories because emotions are important and people matter. And when you start taking that element of risk away, like if we get to season three and everybody's perfectly happy, healthy and fine and there's no damage to anybody and it's 950 years in the future and Discovery rejoins the Federation, I'm going to be like, well, what what was the risk? You lost your families, but. (laughs) <laughs> you're, a th- you're a thousand years in the future now it's a thousand years in the future and the federation's gone the borg are everywhere i'm like okay this is kind of <laughs> well That's we'll, crazy, we'll right? get to or... that we'll get to that jump because i have a, i, I want to talk about that too but um so in the episode of course there are some really good things um so the enterprise in battle is super cool it's probably the coolest battle we've ever seen the original enterprise in as far as special effects are concerned you know fighters aside it just looked good um the ship looks great the crew was super cool the special effects on the bridge are wonderful um and number one is great when her and cornwell go to take care of the torpedo i was very sure they were going to kill off number one in that scene um because you know we don't have a canon explanation for where she goes there are some books but again, not canon. So if they wanted to, they could have given her like a hero death. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is this is where it's going to be. And of course, it's not right. It's Cornwell. 
Um, a bit of a bummer. She's wonderful. Uh, Brooks is, is great. And um, she does a great job and the sacrifice is really strong. It's a little sad because Star Trek has that trope of evil admirals and bad admirals. And we finally have a good one. We have a true Federation admiral and she has to sacrifice herself uh, after just knowing her for two years is unfortunate. Um, but uh, but the scenes are great. I mean, the actors are fantastic. Pike is fantastic too. And that moment between the two of them when he's down there and he's like, you know, well, if I'm not supposed to die here, then I guess we'll all be fine kind of thing, of course, alluding to the vision that he had with the time crystal. Um, it's a great scene. And, you know, Cornwall knows that she, that he's supposed to stay around, that there's this is not his time. She knows that somehow she knows him. Um, it's cool. It's it's a it's a really cool moment. Those characters are really wonderful. Um, and if these two episodes did anything, if this season did anything it was make me want to see them make me want to see pike his mission number one be introduced to their crew um that was so compelling to me because those two just nailed those roles no you are absolutely correct and you know we'll talk about cornwall's death here in a second because there's something about the scene that really drove me crazy but the cat Anson Mount nails it. Uh, Rebecca Romaine nailed it. She, they both look great in their uniforms. And, you know, I'm a big fan of people who have good screen presence and good stage presence because it adds to the characters. It adds to the roles. And, you know, people, you know, can criticize Captain Janeway from Voyager for sometimes her questionable decision making. But one thing nobody ever questioned her or the actress about was her screen presence. She looked and acted like a captain. You know, she could alter her voice. She could have good eye contact. She could criticize people when appropriate. She could, you know, she could question them. She could challenge them. She had amazing screen presence. I think all of our captains have. Um, Lorca even had great screen presence, and that's a testament to the actor. Um, And same thing with Saru. So screen presence is important to me. Uh, What drove me crazy about, you know, aside from the fact that I I went back and rewatched, and again, I know there's somebody out there that might prove me wrong. This was the only photon torpedo fired in the battle. It was the one fired by Section 31 that impacted on the Enterprise and didn't explode. The Enterprise and Discovery didn't fire any. They only used their phasers, which, whatever. But the one photon torpedo that hits the one flagship that doesn't explode, and they go down to detonate it, or to stop the detonation, and you said, like you said, Pike gave his little speech, well, I saw the future, I'm not supposed to die here in Cornwall. He's like, are you sure you want to take a chance on that right now? Like, at this... At this moment, probably not the best idea. And she she shows uh, she closes the blast door. Close the blast door. Um, <laughs> from, <laughs> she closes the blast door, and for some reason the the transporters are broken or down, or the external shields prevent internal transport among the Enterprise. They don't beam her out, but I, the site to site transport may not exist yet. Okay. In the time in the timeline, I'm I'm not sure. I don't think we saw it until TNG. Well, here's the so. other thing then. So they close the blast door, and you have the transparent aluminum shield, and the torpedo detonates, and Pike's fine. He's just you know three and a half feet away, but the whole front of the goddamn ship is blown off. <laughs> so apparently, <laughs> like I, I was I was actually trying to listen. I was like maybe. Maybe they uh, maybe they activated some like internal shields to deflect the blast away from the door, but that didn't happen. 
So there's an explosion that's an explosion in in 270 degrees <laughs> away from Captain Pike. And, like, excuse me, I was kind of hoping that, uh, I don't know, he was going to get hurt. Not killed, but, like, consequence. He watched a photon go off and kill Admiral Cornwell and destroy a quarter of the ship. And it's like, remember Wrath of Khan at the end when... Spock is getting ready to go into the engine room to fix the engines, and he comes down, he's talking to Dr. McCoy, and Scotty passes out from radiation poisoning, and, you know, McCoy talks Spock out of going into the thing, and then he, uh, and Spock tricks him, he's like, well, okay, doctor, what is Mr. Scott's condition? And then five seconds later, Scotty jumps up and is screaming at Spock, no, Spock, no, so I'm, I remember making a joke with my friend, I'm like, well, apparently Scotty's fine. And it's the same situation here where there was an explosion and Cornwall dies. But the explosion just doesn't make sense. It it blew up a quarter of the ship, right? The explosion really doesn't make sense. So first off, the blast door is thin enough to just be between the turbo lift in the room. It can even have glass in it, which I can't imagine, you know, transparent aluminum is that strong. Uh, so then the question is, well, if that material is so strong and it can be so thin, why isn't everything made out of that stuff? <laughs> I mean, remember it took, one, <laughs> it took one inch of stuff to hold water for Scotty's tanks. How much like, How much I, would it take to withstand a 38, what, megaton explosion? I, I don't know. and like, it just, But it's such a thin door that my argument would just be like, why wouldn't most of the bulkheads just be built out of that stuff? <laughs> exactly. And again, you this know? is... I know there's somebody out there that's like, you guys are nitpicking. I'm like, this is this is like 50 years of Star Trek history, though, where they've been talking about transparent aluminum and what it can and can't do, and how most of the windows on the ship are transparent aluminum. And Well, they also this... killed off a character. Yeah. You know? And if, if you're going to kill off a character, you gotta you, know, you have to make it make sense. And it's something that we've talked about a lot, especially this season. And yeah, I mean, how many other people do you think died on those multiple decks on the front of the saucer section that's essentially gone now? Um, you know, it's a huge chunk of the ship that's blown up. Now, one interesting thing is it does explain why the Enterprise gets a massive refit before Kirk becomes captain. Because um, part of why I'm struggling to find the crew numbers is there was a refit that took place before Kirk got the Enterprise. Kirk's Enterprise was the second like rendition of it, um, second iteration. And so this must be that explanation. Um, you know, we lost, you know, a third of the saucer section, so I might as well give it a refit. Um, so they did that, but yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the rest of it makes no sense. I'm not sure why the corridor on the other side of the room was strong enough to withhold the blast, but the decks, the two, three, four decks behind it were not. Um, that doesn't really work for me. The... I mean, the death, I mean, it, it's it's something that sci-fi has done before, right? Someone's going to stay behind and lock the door or whatever. And that, that's fine. It's a little tropey, but it's fine. Um, but but compared, the, compared to the scene in Q-Who, when the Borg start cutting into the Enterprise-D and they cut out, like, sections 13, 14, and 15 on decks, whatever, are, are destroyed. And there's, like, 17 people have been killed. And Picard is, like, devastated. I mean, he is absolutely livid with Q. He's livid with the Borg. He's upset. He's like, I mean, even with Nagilum, remember him? He kills that one ensign, you know, whatever. And, you know, we cannot allow you to do that. And Cornwall's dead. And there's like a little bit of sadness. And Pike's a little bit of sad. But 
those deaths made sense. And this is another thing where it's just, there's just so many ways that they could have done it or they could have, you know, it would have, I don't know. And, you know, like you said, the other thing, the actress who played Cornwall was great. And, you know, she penned a letter to the fans. Cause all the, a lot of, like you said, she's like the first non crazy admiral we get to experience. Who's not, you know, got some Admiral Nechev who likes putting Picard in the worst situations ever. And then she's like, peace, I'm out. She doesn't <laughs> have an agenda. Her her no. entire goal is to be a good officer and create good officers around her. You know, she's the first to stand up against Section 31. She's the first to let Burnham do this ridiculously crazy mission. You know, like she's a good person trying to do a good job. And killing her off is a bummer. Um, and just the way it happened was a little just kind of crazy. I guess an argument could be made that nobody else died because everybody else on the ship is on a fighter. <laughs> um, but again, how many of those? So, okay. So let's talk about the fighters again really quick. I know we're going back 10 minutes. But like you said, so we had like 200 of our fighters in the air and Section 31 drones were everywhere. I mean, they were everywhere. Like at that point, they could just start ramming the Federation fighters and they would have no losses. Because it doesn't matter. They're drones. You know, that's why right. the military considers drones sacrificial. You're not losing a human when a drone goes down. And, you know, I could probably go on a three-hour rant about why the entire time the Section 31 ships aren't moving at all. And the Enterprise and the Discovery are kind of moving. The Enterprise is moving all over the place. Because yeah. it's, it's trying to shield. Which, okay, I do love this. I know they're outnumbered like 15 to 1 and 1,000 to 1 with fighter craft. But I love how the Enterprise is protecting the Discovery because for month, for years, for decades, and you've brought this up more than anybody I know, the Constitution-class ships were considered 12 of the best ships in the galaxy at that time. They weren't considered minor improvements over the Romulans that they knew of or the Klingons. They were considered substantial improvements to the point where there's canon of the Klingons were legitimately worried about Constitution-class starships. The so, D7 was designed yeah. and produced specifically for those ships. Exactly. Like, yeah. So it was cool to see what it's essentially a battle cruiser, you know, actually in, in form, you know. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other the reason I want to bring that up is spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. So Burnham realizes <laughs> with Spock. Yeah, it's too late. Burnham realizes with Spock that, you know, we've only seen four of the red signals. This is kind of weird. And then she's like, I actually like that. I actually like that part when she realizes she's like, wait a second. Or Spock realizes or whatever. They kind of did it as a team. They're like, wait, wait a second. Who says you can't have a signal right now? Because that's time travel. It doesn't matter if you think it happened in the past or in the future. If it could happen now, it could happen now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like space balls, right? Anything that can happen now is happening right now. Yes. So good. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually liked how they did those signals. Yes. And they found more stuff to go to. And the whole time, I know there was a lot of people discussing on on the internet, on the interwebs, in between episodes, that everybody's like, oh, Ash Tyler's going to go get the Klingons. And the Klingons are going to save the day, just like they did when they retook Deep Space Nine. And I was like, that's a pretty good idea. But then when I was watching the episode, I was like, what if Burnham uses one of the points to go to Starfleet Command? And even though Starfleet Communications is down, she goes back like a week in time and they gather a fleet of like 300 ships. (laughs) I'm like, that would be cool to have the Federation show up. But that it didn't happen. Interesting. But, you know, and it didn't happen, and that's fine. So we get to see the big Klingon Cleaver ship show up, which, again, was still kind of neat, even though they used it one time. Well, and they show the D7s, and, man, they're freaking beautiful. They're gorgeous. Uh, and, 
And then we barely get to see them, which is really a bummer because it's one of my favorite Star Trek ship designs ever. Um, top of my list, really. And um, to, to finally get to see a real HD rendered version from scratch, I was pretty freaking excited about it. And then, you know, they don't do a whole lot. And that was a bit of a bummer. <laughs> it was it was definitely a bit of a bummer. And, you know, and I know there's people complaining about how many times the Discovery Fix-It Shield, the Enterprise did this. And like that, you know, I don't care about that. That's Star Trek. Star Trek's been doing that for 50 years where Scotty takes a toothpick. He's like, I got us 15% more shield powder, Captain. Like, I don't care. I mean, even... Uh, I'm just going to throw another DS9 reference in there. When the Dominion are attacking DS9 and Wei Yun's talking to Galt Dukat, he's like, their shields are holding. That's impossible. And even Dukat's like, I told you never to underestimate the Federation's technical ability. So I get that. You know, fine. So Tilly or whoever can fix the ship in five minutes. That actually makes... That makes sense. Starfleet basically trains everybody to be an engineer. Right. It, no, you're, you're totally right. It's, just, it's, it's why the term babble exists. You know, you just say a bunch of sciencey words and it explains that thing. And that's fine. We're, most of us are okay with that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, you'll know most of the people listening right now, you'll notice we're talking about everything basically except for control and Leland. And I think, you know, Leland kind of became a trope. He kind of, he kind of became the almost a villain of the week just because all right, it's an AI that can control all 30 ships, but not control them very well, but can control a thousand drones. And, you know, I, I enjoyed his fight with Commander Nan and Giorgio. I thought that was really well done. I thought there was a decent amount of suspense, although for a second I thought they killed Commander Nan and I was going to be really pissed. Yeah, there was that uh, moment. <laughs> when he slammed yeah. her into the bulkhead, I was like, oh, she's dead. And I'm like, her back It looked broken. painful. It looked horribly painful, and... So the fight scene was cool, but again, it's just the thing about villains, and it's one reason why I've always said that Gal Dukat is a great villain, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, why Khan is such a good villain, is you understand their motives. You know, Khan is driven by revenge because he thinks Kirk betrayed him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gal Dukat is just paranoid about the Cardassians after the Klingon War, Becoming a second-rate, third... He even says that, like, where Cardassi is a third-rate power. And he's like, we can't have that. We need to build up. You know, villains with motives... Like... So aside from destroying all organic life, the same trope as every AI ever in the history of ever, what was Control's motive? Like, what was Leland's motive? Does he have one? Just destroy all organics, right? I mean, it's Mass Effect. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It's... Somehow he comes to the conclusion that it's it's the Terminator thing, right? Just wipe them all out, right? It's a virus. It's the it's the Ultron problem, um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily like bad. It it's just not particularly compelling for me, and I do want to say that I am very glad, very happy that it's not the Borg because oh my God, I me really too. didn't like those theories. Um. But here's here's my my main issue with control at this point. We've I've already talked about my problems with the fact that control exists, but in these two episodes, in the finale, he's hand-to-hand fighting Giorgio and Nan. He's winning like he should. But they defeat him. They kill him. Giorgio kills him in a pretty gruesome way. It's it's a pretty good scene. It's a great scene. They haven't time traveled yet, though. 
<laughs> oh, here it comes. In fact, in fact, the bridge is waiting for confirmation from Giorgio that control is neutralized. So they neutralize him. So why are they traveling a thousand years into the future immediately? And there it is. I have no <laughs> idea what the decision-making process was for that moment because they knew they've said it. Can, you know, Leland is dead. The Section Thirty One ship stopped moving. They all cease function, and they still get the sphere data away. And I don't know. I honestly, I have no understanding of the. I don't know why. I can't. Now, there, I can't fathom. There's a real world reason, and I think the fact that there's a real world reason bothers me even more. And it's that they wanted the showrunners, the, the writers, the creators. And I'm not saying this is a bad motivation because I do understand it. They wanted to be free from the shackles of old canon because they're trapped with all of us talking about what's canon and not canon because it takes place before most of Star Trek. They wanted to jump ahead past all of Star Trek. So every planet, every species, every ship and every weapon and piece of technology can be whatever they want it to be because there's no canon to compare it to. And I get that. I understand that. I respect that. But that's not the show you were making. You were making a TOS era show. The showrunner left. I get that. Brian Fuller left. And the people that remained didn't want to be pigeonholed. So the answer is to just throw the ship a thousand years into the future. With really no motivation. The scary thing to me, there is a literal 30-second solution. Is the fight scene doesn't change. Killing Leland or Control doesn't change. They change one aspect of what is happening. And it makes the show a thousand times more dramatic in my eyes. Is they neutralize Control. And they're like, alright, we don't need to travel in the future. And... Saru or Till, I don't give a shit who says it. One of them says, well, Burnham's already entered. That's it. Already entered the wormhole. And now Discovery crew has to make a choice. We told her we would go with her, but she's already gone. What do we do? Boom. Do you know what I mean? Then you have Saru going, you know, I'm sorry, everybody. We promised her to go with her. We're going with her. There. There. I just solved it in 45 seconds. It's not the perfect (laughs) ending. It's a better ending than what we got. And it makes it a little bit more dramatic because then they get on the other side and they tell Burnham, like, oh, by the way, we killed Leland and she can have her meltdown. She's like, what do you mean we killed Leland? Why are we here? (laughs) Why is the sphere data here a thousand years in the future? And that was the other thing I was going to rant about is we still never really understood the motivation of the sphere of aside from staying alive because it raised Discovery Shields, even though it kind of reminds me of uh, Star Trek Generations when the Enterprise is fighting that, you know. B-type warbird or whatever, or bird of prey. Right. I'm like, couldn't the con- couldn't a Constitution Clash heavy cruiser overwhelm Discovery Shields in minutes if it needed to and still destroy the ship? Unless I, unless the sphere severely enhanced the shields, but the shields didn't work against Section 31. So... <laughs> well, well, right. Like, I mean, the ship has resources, and at some point those resources are going to run out. Um, so you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, you, you blow up the engine so it can't go anywhere and then you push it into the sun, you know, or or a star or something. Uh, there's a lot of, of solutions to that. And 
even if you can't destroy it. How does sending it into the future really solve anything? You're, you're assuming that nothing like control can exist a thousand years in the future. Why not? Would Couldn't something even more powerful be there in the future? We have the Borg in the future. We have Species 8472 in the future. You have, you know, incredible uh, civilizations like the Iconians that existed a long time ago and may come back. Like, there's, there's just so many unknowns. You're throwing it into a place that you have known nothing about. What if a species finds it and it's not the Klingons who have respect for, you know, sentient life in general – and it's somebody else. It's the Romulans and they think they can control it or something. Um, it's just like it's a super risky throwaway explanation to just say we don't like the timeline our show is set in. Yeah, and let's be realistic here about something else. Even with throwing the ship in the future, they're like to the one place control will never find it. 950 years in the future on Terra Elysium, which whatever, but... So Leland and Control are, is an AI, unless they're trying to suggest that Control is tied to Leland's organic lifespan, which doesn't exactly make any sense to me. But let's just pretend that he is, and he can only live for 150 years. Well, he can still just absorb, the Control could still just absorb another human at some point. Um, so they go a thousand years into the future. And let's be realistic here. You know, the time span between yesterday's Enterprise... And when the Enterprise C is destroyed at Narendra 3, or they're assumed destroyed, right. to the Enterprise D at that timeline. And I know it's a timeline where they're at war, but they even say it's like a 20-year time span. And they're like, yeah, the Enterprise D could absolutely overwhelm four Romulan warbirds from 20 years ago. Because technology in, the, in this universe moves so fast. And a perfect example is the Federation at Wolf 359 versus Federation at the Battle of Sector 001. When Federation ships in five years have become substantially so superior that they're able to fight the Borg at the same time they're fighting the Dominion. And that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So a thousand years in the future, I mean, you're traveling into a point where you don't understand any of the politics of the galaxy. You, you're going into the, I thought they said the Beta Quadrant, which is where the Klingons and Romulans are. So you have no idea. I mean, they're literally going nowhere. They have no idea of what they're jumping into. It's literally just it's the end of I, I don't know but the, the whole thing is confusing because all right so let's pretend it's tied to control and you know leland when leland's body dies control dies with it okay that's fine leland's on the ship control is on the ship so if Giorgio doesn't kill him they've just sent the ship into the future with leland with control so if they kill him in the future Ships in the same time period, so what's the difference? Same as, well, maybe they should stick around until he, they get him off the ship. So again, like, they just need, really wanted to shoehorn in the time jump. No matter what. No matter what happened, they wanted to free themselves from this time period. And it's a really strange situation for me. Because on the one hand, I, I want future Trek. I want to see what happens next. I want to move away from constantly conflicting with canon or having to explain yourself to canon because it is handcuffing and it's frustrating for everybody but i need you to, to do it in a way that 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 works that makes sense for me and in this case we had two seasons of a show that were purposely put in a, the time period before kirk and now you can't you gave me a reason you have to time jump it's not a great reason because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and then you remove that reason and you still do the time jump <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, you know? Yes. Um, and so I just, I, I, it's very frustrating for me. And now we're going to be ahead in the future. We're going to have this ship that is now a thousand years old with crew, engines, weapons, shuttles. Everything's a thousand years old. Their knowledge is a thousand years out of date. We are assuming the Federation exists a thousand years from now, but we don't really know. The farthest we've ever jumped is the Enterprise J in Enterprise, and that was not this far into the future. Um, that was, I believe, the 29th century. So this is, you know, three, four hundred years after that. Um, there could be no Federation. There could be a massive war. There could be plagues of some kind. There could be any number of things out there to destroy them. So it's just like you're saying, this massive unknown risk that they're taking that the reason for doing it's even removed before they do it. Um, you know, there it's very convoluted. You know, we all knew that Spock couldn't go with her, right? Because he's got to be back on the Enterprise. And there's some cool stuff in there. Um, when she's saying goodbye to him, really, and she's telling him what to do, what to do without her. It's a pretty emotional scene. It's a good exchange between the two of them. Uh, their relationship has been one of the brighter spots of the season. Um, and she's like, I mean, she's straight up talking about Kirk. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, just go find James C. Kirk and be friends with him. Right? Like, find your opposite. Find someone who challenges you, who doesn't think like you, who drives you crazy. You know? And what does he do? He finds that exact person and they, they become lifelong friends. And um, it makes it a very pivotal moment and it, it really helps explain the origin of that friendship. That's really cool. So it kind of makes that that aspect of, of the finale worth it to me. Um, Giorgio being on Discovery still has a lot of unanswered questions for me. She's supposed to be getting her own Section 31 show where they shape Section 31. Um, not sure how she can do that from a thousand years in the future. Um, I um, I had a theory about what I think they might be doing with Discovery. I posted it on Twitter before the, the second part of the finale. Um, it's not disproven yet. I, I could still all It could still happen. Um, but basically my theory was that... Um, the ship would end up in the future without the crew and the crew would be back in the, in the current timeline that they're in with no ship. And number one would get promoted to captain and they would rechristen a constitution class starship discovery, you know, NCC 1031A. And we, they would use the, a modified version of the enterprise bridge. So they would have holographic displays and stuff to match the rest of the ships um, and that would be our captain moving into season three or at some point in season three would be number one. Um, obviously they sent the ship with the people, but they, you know, with Calypso, the short tracks episode, the ship has to become abandoned at some point with essentially no real damage, uh, AI or not, there's no structural damage. It doesn't look like there was a firefight. The ship was just left in a nebula. Um, so I still think that could happen in season three, even maybe in the first half of the season um, or something like that. But I, you have to get Giorgio back in time. How can she change the direction of section 31 from a thousand years in the future? Yeah. Unless they're going to shoehorn in like the very, very minor place of, uh, or the minor people of the temporal police. That show yeah. up and they're like, we're going to confiscate your ship and we're going to send your asses back to where you came from. And 
by the way, stop fucking with the timeline. <laughs> well, so oh. that's a good point, but, right? Or, um, or by the way, we found this deceased nanobot thing and they're not actually dead. So <laughs> we're going to fix your mistake. The, yeah, the, the the temporal prime directive would very much be in effect in, um, you know, the three thousands. And um, it's kind of a an interesting thing. Time travel could certainly continue to be part of the show. Um, one other thing that we get in this is, you know, an explanation for why we never hear about any of this stuff ever again. Um, again, it's an explanation that doesn't really work for me, but they were like, hey, here's why. And everyone is, you know, silenced. Can't talk about Discovery or the Spore Drive or any of those people ever again. Ignoring the fact that they were like the lead ship during the war and countless planets saw them civilians saw them and the entire klingon empire knows about them um can't silence the klingon empire but you know i guess they did somehow <laughs> um and we learn number one's name i all right greg did you catch this in the episode at all i caught it but i I was reading online, and apparently everybody heard a different name than me. I swear I heard Anna, or Anna, or something along those lines. And I was seeing people talk that her name was, like, Nuna, which, um... So it's, so it's Una. Um, now, I missed it completely. Um, so I'm glad she has a name. And if it's not going to be Majel, if, her, if that won't be her name, then I'm glad it's Una, because... That legitimizes uh, David Mack's books, um, the Star Trek legacy novels. There's a trilogy um, where she has a name. And that's cool. Uh, I'm glad. I totally missed it. I have to go back and see if I can find it. I, I really didn't notice at all. Is her, name, is her name Una in the books? It is. Okay. I'm, I feel better then. Because when I hear Una, yeah. I think of... Uh, Una is the name of the princess in Stardust. Mm, yes right so una una (laughs) i was like okay good thank you you have educated me i appreciate that yeah no that's that's the name in the books which is cool it legitimate it helps legitimize the beta canon series which is great um you know and uh i'm fine with that i was disappointed when i didn't think when i thought they didn't give her a name so i'm glad they did um I don't know. I other than doing kind of a full season discussion and recap and thoughts about next season, I'm not sure what else to say. Yeah, I mean, it was again, and I know there's people out there that are very defensive of Discovery, and I understand that. And I know there's plenty of people that have said, "Well, you know, Greg, Discovery might not be your show." And I'm not saying I don't like the show. It's just I get it, but I still stand by the fact that you're allowed to criticize something you adore or that you love, and. It's the same thing with Game of Thrones. I love Game of Thrones, and I criticize it more than most people do. Um, I criticize myself at work more than my bosses criticize me. It doesn't mean I don't like who I am. It's mm-hmm. just we criticize the things we love because we we want to do we want them to constantly strive to do better. And the Discovery showrunners have said that you know they've been listening to fan feedback on Christopher Pike and wanting a Christopher Pike show. They said, "Yeah, we've heard you." And you make a you made a comment of. Maybe they find a way to get Discovery back and rechristen a Constitution class ship, because you know they talk about how they built the Discovery or the the Enterprise bridge. Basically, you know they're not going to build that bridge and not use it, even if it's only digital. They're going to use those files at some point in the future, whether it's a future Christopher Pike show or Enterprise or Discovery One Zero Three One A. 
they're going to find a way to reuse those assets. They just are. Well, they, they built most of it. The only part that wasn't built was the front display. Um, normally, they build everything around the view screen, and the view screen is a green screen. Um, but they just left that side of the of the bridge a green screen. Uh, the rest of it's all real. It's all physically there. And it does feel like a waste if they don't use it, um, which is partly where my theories came from. I'd love to see a Pike show. Uh, he has a few more years left before Kirk has to take over the Enterprise anyway. Um, we could see, you know, uh, why he gets promoted and, and different things of that nature. Uh, same with number one. We can find out when does she become captain? Of what ship is she captain? What happens to her career? And it's a, um, and it's a reaffirmation that those three characters, or excuse me, the actors and actresses, Rebecca Romaine, Anson Mount, and uh, <sighs> Spock? Ethan Peck. Ethan Peck. Um, I wanted to say Zachary Quinto. I was like, no, bad Greg. Um, <laughs> those three have a chemistry together that we haven't, that, yeah, we've had bits and pieces of it on Discovery. I actually thought uh, Lorca and Burnham had great chemistry together, despite the nature of the relationship. I thought their chemistry was great. And the chemistry between those three has been phenomenal. And mm-hmm. they look fantastic in their uniforms. And they act the part. And I like that they gave an attitude to... Uh, Number one. I like that. You know, when she's getting kind of interrogated and I'm like, that's, that's what you want in a first officer. She's protecting her ship. She's protecting her crew. And she's badass. Yeah. She's like, why are you questioning me? Like, haven't we, we've already told you this three times. That's Mm -hmm. how people react when they're frustrated. And I, you know, it's, but you know, I know we're getting near the hour mark. Uh, I'm just going to, before we dive into your thoughts, I'm going to unpopular opinion. I kind of give this the, the, the closing episode is six out of 10 mainly because I think the storyboard elements that they leave open with killing, you know, control and still going into the future and the way they killed Cornwell and the explosion and the fighters and the drones, there's just too many gaps and holes for me to, you know, some people out there were describing it. This is the greatest Star Trek finale since best of both worlds. I mean, you cannot say that with a straight face. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the, it's, that is the equivalent of when people described, and I already referenced it once, and I'm going to reference it again, two times in one Star Trek podcast. That is as insulting to me as when people said the Wing Commander movie was Top Gun meets Starship Troopers. It's like, stop. Ugh. That is literally an impossible statement. Just like saying this is as good as Best of Both Worlds. That's not saying it's terrible, but The Hobbit was as good as The Return of the King. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Stop. It's, it, it's just, let it be its own thing. It doesn't have to be, not everything has to be compared to Best of Both Worlds. You can still like it, just not like it as much, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I have much to add to that. I'm, I'm with you. Um, I'd probably give it a C grade um, because I still, f- I love this cast. I really do. They're all phenomenal actors and the characters are all very interesting and they they really sell what they're given and i appreciate that very much and so i never want anyone to think that i'm slamming the actors in any way or i'm not even slamming the writers really i I, they have a very difficult job doing this show um, especially setting it in the timeline that ryan fuller kicked the show off in you know this this is why a lot of us had concerns when we found out this takes place 10 years before kirk and spock you know my concern was how are they going to be able to pull that off with, with the canon the way it is? And it's been a struggle. So much so that they basically took an entire season to reboot the show <laughs> so they could do it differently. Um, 
And we're kind of in an age of that stuff happening. You know, there's rumors, of course, that uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker will retcon a lot of The Last Jedi. And now Discovery is retconning itself. And, you know, um, it's a, it's, it can be difficult. Um, clearly, the writers know Star Trek. There is zero doubt in my mind that, that you know, they, they are Trekkies. Um, there's no no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And um, they're trying to come up with something unique and cool and exciting and emotional um, without pissing off too many people. And I'm not mad. I'm absolutely not mad. I love Star Trek. And this was not perfect, but it certainly wasn't the worst that we've ever seen in the franchise. Um, no, this is no code of honor. <laughs> no, it's no, no co- it's definitely no code of honor. Um, you know, there's look, there's terrible episodes in every Star Trek series. That's just a fact. Well, and and I want to borrow a phrase you just said. There's a big difference between being disappointed in something and being mad at something. I'm not mad at the showrunners or the cast and crew. I can be disappointed with some of the decisions they made. But yeah, I'm not mad at CBS or I'm not mad at Star Trek. I don't want it to get canceled. I want to have as much Star Trek as possible. It's it's like when you when you make it. I, I, used our, I use ourselves on this show all the time. If I make a mistake at work, I'm disappointed in myself. I'm not mad at myself. I'm not going to sit there and pound myself into an emotional coma. I'm going to say, Greg, I'm disappointed with my performance today. I'm going to find a way to fix it tomorrow. That's normal. That's human life. It's, you know, it's like when yeah. adults, when couples have a fight, you, everybody's like, oh, you're mad at them. It's like, yeah, maybe you're more disappointed. You're not mad at your spouse unless they truly do something crazy. But it's like my love for Star Trek. I like Star Trek. I love Star Trek. It's going to take more than one bad finale for me to not like Star Trek. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, I, I'm i big on expectation setting. You know, I, I set my mind a particular way. And Disco got me to set it to what it was in season one. And so I'm going to try and go into season three with this idea of they're in the future now. Just deal with that. That's where they are. Forget the first two seasons ever happened because they're pretty irrelevant at this point. And you know, go forward. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, maybe you and I are too critical, Craig. I don't know. Um, our Twitter polls for the two episodes, we did, uh, two, one for each part, because at the time such sweet sorrow was not a part one. It was just such sweet sorrow. Um, so 68% gave it an A with 18% giving it a B. Um, 11% gave it a C and only 3% gave it a D or lower. Whereas for part two, a little bit different, um, 61% with an A, 27% with a B, 8 with a C, and then 4% with a D or lower. So, I mean, overall, people are pretty happy with the finale. You know, if you kind of split the difference between 68% and 61%, you know, you're still looking at two-thirds of, almost two-thirds of people gave it an A with really 80-ish percent of people giving it a B or higher. So, um you know, it, it's making people happy and it is, uh, that's a good thing. And it's showing a lot of different stuff. I mean, you look at that Enterprise bridge crew and there were a lot of women on that bridge crew, which is, I think, the writer's ways of undoing what was said in the cage. You know, this is a different Pike. This is not the 1964 Pike who didn't like women on the bridge. This is the Anson Mount Pike in 2019 um whose first officer is number one and she's a badass and this is her his crew you know um having you know a a woman admiral save the day and having a 
woman science officer save the day you know these are all it's 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 very diverse from that perspective star trek has tried to be diverse but there's no doubt that this is the most diverse star trek has ever been whether it's by sex uh sexual preference race doesn't matter um they're all pretty well represented or at least more represented than they have been if it's you know not quite enough yet um but uh yeah, so there's a lot of positives. There's a lot of good things to take away. And now we just have a lot of questions. And questions aren't a bad thing. If we didn't care, we wouldn't have questions. <laughs> now, uh, the last thing that I have is more of a scheduling topic. So, Greg, if do you have anything else you want to say about such sweet sorrow? No, I'm just uh, ready for season three. I'm a little going in with a little lower interest than season two, but... So what? You know, I that happens to a lot of TV shows. Maybe season three will open up with three killer episodes and I'll love it even more than Next Generation season three, four, and five. That's probably impossible, but you get my you get my point. I do. Fair enough. Um, so if you're listening to this, uh, we are going to be adjusting our schedule a little bit. New episodes will be coming out on Fridays again. That's with the uh, release date that we had before Disco season two. We adjusted to match discovery so we're moving back to fridays so uh starting next week this episode will come out uh, normal time but starting next week we'll be coming out on fridays so join us for that that's all i have that's all i got going on here so i appreciate everybody sticking around for episode 68 of red shirts and runabouts part of the heroes podcast network derek if people want to talk to you directly how can they find you I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter and Facebook and I guess also Instagram. Come talk to me about stuff. And I am, of course, the underscore bittersteel on Twitter. Find me and chat at me about how some of my ideas and theories are in, uh, inconsistent with yours. I always enjoy that. We've had some very polite discussion lately, and that's good. Fans should be able to have polite discussions. It's, you know, my best friends growing up, you know, when I fell in love with the USS Phoenix and all my other friends is like, Greg, the Phoenix looks stupid. Like the Phoenix is amazing. The one that, uh, <laughs> the one that Miles O'Brien served on, not the Phoenix that broke the warp barrier. Not the uh, not Cochran's Phoenix. Not Cochran's <laughs> Phoenix. You know the Phoenix that could destroy a Kling- uh, Cardassian ship with one torpedo. I'm like that ship's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so again, no, but we're red shirts and runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. It's good to be back from my uh, visiting of the Island of Enchantment. So I look forward to, to going home and continue recording. But until next week, when we start talking some, uh, Derek and I are working on some very interesting topics moving forward, everybody. Next week, we'll likely do just a Discovery Season 2 recap overall. But then we're also going to start soliciting some feedback from people online and on, you know, that listen to us, what you want us to talk about. But Derek and I have a lot of ideas planned. So in the words of Arnold, stick around. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and is hosted by Gregory Bosco and me, Derek Mayer. The music is by Flying Killer Robots. Please follow us at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter or at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or HeroesPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our show on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and pretty much any other podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please support us. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash heroes podcasts, and we also have a coffee, ko-fi.com slash heroes podcasts. We'll catch you next time. Live long and prosper.